electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thank you very much, and welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner here at Post 9. Front and center this hour, those two major stories we're following just like all of you. The jobs report, the continued fallout as well from Silicon Valley Bank, its closure, and now its impact on a whole host of different areas. We discuss and debate that with the Investment Committee and some special guests today. Joining me for the hour, Josh Brown, Liz Young, and Steve Weiss. Also with us, senior economics reporter Steve Leisman today. We'll show you what's happening in the markets today. Uh, been a, you know, a bit all over the place. At the current moment, we are down across the board. Yields remain a very big story today. They've been falling for much of the session here. There's the 10-year at 376. The two-year, we can show that on an intraday basis, too, please, because that's been a considerable story. Remember, above 5% just a handful of days ago, and now we have been dropping like a stone there, down 25 to 30 basis points or so over that period of time. But let's kick off the conversation uh, with the committee. Weiss, I, I go to you first. Um, you are both connected in, in all of this in a way, in the, in the way that you invest, right, as an investor, not only in venture firms, but startups themselves. So I just want you to give us a real world on the ground view here of how you're thinking about this, this story as it develops. So what we did yesterday, we're in numerous early stage companies uh, and sitting, I sit on the board of a couple of them. And the first call was get the money out. And some of the resistance was, well, you know, they'll survive this, then they'll remember that we weren't there for them. And I said, you're not hearing me. Get the money out. You know, you're, and, and there was no resistance after that because it's not worth betting your company on. And if you take a look at Lehman, it took 14 years for the last person to get their money out and they weren't all made whole. So you need your operational capital at some place where you can access it. And you just can't risk the fortunes of the company or yourself if you're a founder. So it was, a, it was no controversial decision whatsoever. So there's no upside to keeping the capital. But, I mean, you, you heard, you know, Dee Bosa just a moment yep. ago with, you know, the anecdotes that she had yep. heard, you know, people literally lining up at branches, trying to get money yep. out, trying to get a cashier's check. Right. Had a similar anecdote yeah. to us when you showed up here today. Yeah. So we had one founder that immediately tried to wire at wire the capital. And then we're hearing at least a two day delay from SVB to from a, SVB to a, another a bank. larger institution. Exactly. So he went to the bank stood on a long line of founders, actually got a cashier's check for a very sizable sum, walked over to another bank, sat there. They wouldn't take it into a business account initially, so had to put it into his personal account. And now is transferring it to the business account. So it's, uh, it's a mess. Look, you don't know really what's going on there because they had credit lines out to, I mean, they were the banker of choice. You've got others like Gallup Capital, Right, that does it. But Gollum Capital is much, I would say, smarter in how they do it because they take a lot of collateral. It may be personal guarantees, et cetera. But I'm sure there's some risk to others as well. This is, though, ground zero for it. So, Liz, you know, given, you know, the position in which you sit and the way you think about the market as a, as a strategist, you know, supposed to be and paid to think about the big picture in the markets, what does this make you think about? Well, I think this is a clear reminder of how quickly something like this can happen. I mean, less than overnight, right, it, it all occurred, and, and how big and how strong something like a snowball effect is. I talk about the jobs market a lot in the sense of it's like a boulder rolling down a hill. It starts slowly and then it picks up speed and you can't stop it until it gets to the bottom. This seemed like something very similar where, to Steve's point, you know, it started as, oh, everything's going to be okay, it's probably contained, and then very, very quickly it was not contained. So here's what I would say, though, about financials in general. The idea of contagion risk and, you know, are we all going to find out suddenly that big banks and the rest of the banks in America have a ton of exposure to VCs? No, we're not going to find that out. 
But do all banks have some bonds on their balance sheet that are underwater if they purchase them before 2022? Absolutely. However, this bank did have a concentrated revenue stream, concentrated exposure to certain parts of the market and the economy that have obviously been hit very, very hard. It doesn't, however, prevent sentiment contagion. And I think that's really the biggest question mark. Oh, well, can, can I just follow up on that one second? Because I want to just go back to the Gallup Capital point. Those, they're different lenders. They're not bank lenders, right? So they go about it in a much different way. So VCs will be able to get some money. It'll be more expensive. But I'm not worried about any of those for the time being. Okay. Josh Brown, your thoughts, please. Uh, we, we run a venture fund for uh, wealth tech startups, and we talked to um, the platform that we run it on AngelList, and AngelList had moved all their money uh, that they had at Silicon Valley. Like, this thing moved so quickly. Um, a couple of observations. The first is, there are so many things that went wrong here. Um, the mismanagement of the Treasury portfolio is probably something that the 15th largest bank in America should not have had on their bingo card of things that could go wrong. Um, the Fed has moved really quickly. That turned a lot of things upside down. A lot of things that maybe people weren't specifically worrying about are now going to come to the fore. I think uh, Liz made an excellent point. It's not necessarily about systemic financial contagion, but it's sentiment contagion. And in some ways, that actually can be just as bad or more damaging if people just lose trust in uh, the entire system. You know, the banks do rely on trust. They rely on the FDIC, but they rely on people being calm. Uh, and this episode does the opposite. So I think that's a really big thing right now um, that we should all be respectful of, uh, even though there are probably going to be some opportunities here. Um, and so the only financial I'm, I'm personally in right now is J.P. Morgan. Uh, J.P. Morgan reversed green today. I think that probably has more to do with what Treasury rates did than anything else. Uh, but we'll take it. That's exactly the way J.P. Morgan should act as, a, as an equity, as a stock. Um, yeah. The other thing I would just point out is you hear all this nonsense about the community, uh, the crypto community, the Silicon Valley community. Steve Weiss is exactly right. There isn't any real community. It is a circular firing squad. The minute the slightest bit of panic sets in, there's absolutely no sense of community. It's every company for itself, every man for itself. Um, I'm actually a little bit surprised that some of the elder statesmen of Silicon Valley uh, weren't more supportive of this bank that's been there for them for 40 years. The, the, what's peculiar about this versus, for example, five years ago when there was a mini oil crash, 2015, 2016, Cullen Frost and all of those regional Texas banks got killed. The difference between that and this is that the Texas oil banks didn't have an army of, of uh, tech bros tweeting about how they're moving their money out. Um, so this is really an aberrant thing from a lot of, uh, a lot of different perspectives. And we're all going to learn or relearn a lot about the way the financial system really operates this week. Sure. You know what? And maybe the Fed, in, in some respects, Steve Leisman, is, is learning uh, more today about just what the impact of what they've done uh, has done to parts of the financial system. You know, I went back and I read the minutes from the most recent Fed meeting just before we came on the air because I wanted to have a better idea, Steve, of, of how they've been talking about financial stability and some of the risks that they've seen. And I think it's a fair question to ask whether they've been worried about it enough. Yes, there was a small part of the minutes which we've created into a full screen so I can share with all of you what they said. Quote, in their discussion of issues related to financial stability, several participants discussed vulnerabilities in the financial system associated with higher interest rates, including the elevated valuations for some categories of assets, particularly commercial real estate sector, the susceptibility of some non-bank financial institutions to bank runs, and the effect of large, unrealized losses on some bank securities portfolios. They also noted the risk and, quote, prospect of negative shocks on the economy. But, Steve, I wonder if you think that they've worried about this enough. Well, Scott, you're more charitable to the Fed than I was, because all I did was go back and look at their monetary policy report to Congress, in which essentially oh, they said... you got to work on Leisman's uh, audio, because I don't hear it. Steve, I can't hear you. Um, let, us, let us fix that, Two, three, four, uh, because five. I do want to get back to you uh, and, and get your thoughts on that, as, as one of the clear questions also remains, what, what all of this means 
uh, for Fed policy coming up, not only in the March meeting, uh, but, but in those ahead. Um, you guys let me know when we have Leesman back. We also have Lo Tony with us, too, of Plexo Capital. Uh, we're so fortunate to have you with us, Lo, uh, for more on the fallout of SVB. I, I'm assuming you can hear me, and I, and I hope we can hear you. Welcome. I can hear you. Thanks for having me. So I, I want to know what your thoughts are as this, this story uh, unfolds before I ask you another serious, uh, uh, series of questions. This is very unfortunate because Silicon Valley Bank has been a cornerstone of the ecosystem for technology companies and life sciences companies for over four decades, 40 years. And if we think about what it means, you know, it's estimated that almost half of venture capital dollars at some point have flowed through Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank not only provides deposits for startups, a lot of the venture capital funds also bank there. Startups have venture debt to be able to provide additional financing outside of equity. Even the venture capital firms will often have lines of credit to be able to finance deals before they call capital from their investors. But I just want to make one very important point, Scott. That is mm -hmm. that Plexo Capital, we are fiduciaries. The entire venture capital industry that takes outside money, we have a fiduciary responsibility to prudently manage risk on behalf of the colleges, universities, endowments, retirement systems. And so immediately yesterday, after talking to senior level bank executives at a top 10 financial institution, realized this was very serious and moving quickly. We sent a note out to our GP network that manages $2 billion in venture capital funds, and we told them the risk and to move as quickly as possible before the wire cutoff. And many of them listened and were able to move. But look, we all had relationships, personal relationships with individuals at Silicon Valley Bank. And unfortunately, there were a lot of people that wanted to remain supportive, but that wasn't acting as a fiduciary. We have to prudently manage risk. Does does Plexo, um, I, I, don't, I don't even want to use the word did. I mean, it's, this is, I know the bank has been closed, but does, um, does Plexo have money at Silicon Valley Bank? Do, do you personally, because I've heard of, you know, stories of GPs that just is so interconnected uh, the way things work out there. That's um, right. Do yeah, you we, personally have money there? Did, yeah, did Plexo have money Scott, there? Fortunately, Scott, we as an institution did not have any funds at Silicon Valley Bank or use of their debt products. I personally was not banking with Silicon Valley Bank, but your point is spot on. Not only does Silicon Valley Bank or did Silicon Valley Bank provide services to tech startups, they provided financial services to big tech, to venture capital firms, and even the individual GPs and high net worth individuals that often made their money from tech would use Silicon Valley Bank in multiple ways. For example, general partners at venture capital funds have to put up a portion of the funds that they raise personally as individuals. Silicon Valley Bank would provide individual lines of credit to help those GPs finance their own personal general partner commitment. High net worth individuals that include general partners at venture capital funds, as well as tech executives and startup executives, often used Silicon Valley Bank's wealth management services to manage their own personal capital. Mm -hmm. And then in addition, Silicon Valley Bank also had a unit that invested into venture capital funds. And when we think about what's happened now, we only saw $250,000 of those amounts protected. Now, in a normal banking relationship for a consumer, that would probably cover it. But in many instances, there were firms that had millions of dollars that were deposited, and now those funds are at risk. We'll be back to you in just a moment. Stay with me, Lo, if you will. I want to get back to Steve Leesman. We fixed his audio, thankfully. But, but on this issue, Steve, and I read you that portion of the most recent minutes, and my question to you was, has the Fed been worried about and thinking about breaking something enough? Lip service in a paragraph means squat. Have they been thinking about it enough? Um, I, I think what we might learn, Scott, is that they have not been. I mean, if you look at the monetary policy report to Congress, which is just a little bit more recent than the document that you said, that you, that you read earlier, uh, there's not much mention at all of risk from this. At the same time, when I look at the outflow or, or the losses mounted on the banks, what they call the, 
net unrealized gains or losses on available securities at domestic commercial banks, it started going negative on January 5th. Now, of course, to some extent, Scott, there are some offsets of this at the banks. They may have hedged this off, but it has been a problem, a gathering problem. And uh, look, if it ends up being contained uh, and handled through the supervisory uh, uh, end of things, then I think the Fed is, is going to be okay here. But they always talk about this, that they could do monetary policy over here and do supervision or what they call macro prudential supervision over there. Sounds nice theoretically. We'll see if it's really working practically. The other question I guess I'd, I'd have for you is that does, you know, I'm just using his name for the example's sake, but does a Bullard, for example, really think you could take the terminal rate to 7%? Do other Fed members who think you can go higher, faster, and stay there longer think that there's not going to be some sort of run-on effect of those sorts of policy decisions. It's one thing to say that publicly, to show that you're forceful to the markets, that you're willing to do whatever it takes to bring inflation down. But you have to seriously think about the ramifications of not only the words, but whether the words are actually turned into actions, which the Fed chair has led us to believe might just be. Well, Scott, if you don't mind, I'd like to take a bit of a step back here. We're talking about the 15th largest bank, I guess, and there has not really been a banking failure, I think, according to Bankrate.com, in two years. It is normal for some number of banks to fail. It is not unusual, you would think, in a situation where interest rates are rising this much that some banks will fail. As far as I know, Scott, the Fed's major focus is on the largest banks, the eight largest banks. Everything we hear is that those are well capitalized. We do not have yet, Scott, I would say, the evidence to suggest that the Fed has failed here when it comes to overall banking supervision in terms of uh, watching for and, and being concerned about systemic risk. Look, some banks are going to go down. That's just a reality of the system we have and a bank that's heavily concentrated in an area of the economy that, quite surprisingly, became the area that was among the hardest hit from uh, Fed, the Fed raising rates. Usually you think construction, Steve. you think manufacturing, Steve. but all of a sudden it's Can tech. This Josh, bank has $200 billion in assets. This bank has two, this is not a bank failure. This bank has $200 billion in assets. I think that makes this the second largest failure after Washington Mutual. This is not like a, a, a thrift bank in Arkansas. I don't, what do you, what do you my, my, the issue, uh, Josh, first of all, is that I, I'm not sure the extent of the losses in the bank that the FDIC uh, uh, press release didn't really make that clear. It looks like they had more assets than they had liabilities. But the other side of this is yes, how widespread but they just closed it is. the bank with $200 billion in assets. Are we like, are we, are we missing the, the plot here? I don't know, Josh. I don't think I understand what you're saying. Sorry. I feel like the I feel okay. like the other thing we need to discuss, um, low, is that yes, we're talking about an individual bank failure, but the innovation economy, in the epicenter of it, is dealing with an earthquake, and we don't know what the fallout from all of that is on what is one of, if not the most important point of growth for the American economy. Without question, if we think about what's been driving the growth in the American economy, it has been the innovation industry. It's been the technology companies, the life sciences companies that have really been driving the growth of the economy, providing jobs, providing returns for investors. And we need to be able to, to sort this out. Obviously, SVB was a very important component of our ecosystem. You know, we suspect there will be other institutions that will step up, and we ha might have to relook at the business model of that heavy concentration. At the end of the day, there were other missteps as well, unfortunately, the mismanagement on the Treasury side and overexposure to mortgage-backed securities and just kind of getting the interest rate forecast wrong. That is a separate issue. But nonetheless, we now have a void to fill. It will get filled. I am highly confident because everyone recognizes how important this is. The question might be, you know, what type of new institution will step in? Will we need mm -hmm. to have a financial institution that has a more diversified portfolio that can be able to maintain solvency when these risks arise? Weiss? 
we're stepping in. So our team is out there reaching out to companies that we've been following and saying, let's talk, get an update, make sure they're hitting the milestones. What it will do is coming after the, coming after the free money 15 years, everybody was able to get funding. Now it's a little bit of a generalization, but not much. So now it's going to be much more selective. Well, what you're talking about is you're, you're trying to step in and, and offer the funding that they can't get elsewhere, but at terms that must be, I can only imagine, well, every must deal be incredibly favorable. Every to those deal for the last that. six months, and I say every, I mean almost every, deal was heavily structured. Liquidation preferences, picks, meaning you know you get more stocks as it goes on. So that was already occurring. You'll see more of it, but there'll be definite separation between you know throwing like money to everybody versus focusing on a few that you have a high, high confidence, confidence you, and will succeed. Liz, do you think, I mean, are you now you know remodeling how you think the Fed is going to act in the next few meetings in terms of, okay, you, you thought, well, the economy you know still pretty hot, they're talking tough. Powell was just on the Hill the other day, upset the market because he was hawkish. You know, there was a thought that, okay, in one of the next two to three meetings, you could get 50 basis points. Are you now resetting your own expectations? I think that there is a lot more uncertainty about what they're going to do. We've got one cut now priced in by the end of the year. I think they're still going to hike in March. I would expect 25, not 50. Uh, I don't know that I ever really was sold on 50. I think that it, it sort of indicated it was going to be this stop-start cycle again. But we can't just assume that Jerome Powell and the rest of the Fed is ignoring what's happening today. So, you know, I think it resets the expectation of what their reaction function is going to look like. But I don't think that they're going to be as reactive on the savior side as they've been in the past. So this continues to just put stress on the system. To some of Steve's points and, and to Lowe's points, the stress that was already happening, though, in deposit competition and you know people putting money in the Treasury market instead of deposits, there were also tightening lending standards happening. So even if there is a bank that comes in and replaces this, it's not happening anytime soon, and it's going to be sort of survival of the fittest of the companies that can get that kind of financing. So regardless, there is going to be kind of a compression and a whittling down of the VC industry and, and some of those uh, smaller companies. You know, the people... Steve, that I've been talking to also today, you know, put forth the suggestion right at the feet of the Fed, really. It's like you you broke it. Now fix it. And maybe the fix it means don't raise rates anymore or at bare minimum, don't even think about going 50 basis points or even raising at the next three meetings. How would you respond? I think that's that makes a lot of sense to me, Scott. It's the reason why the Fed does not want to move in 75 base point rate hike. Uh, uh, jumps. It's a reason why they like to go slowly. And, and one of the uh, reasons we see now is to give banks an opportunity to adjust their portfolios. Um, and, and it should have been something the Fed was on. The fact that this is we are where we are, I think, is sort of prima facie evidence of a supervisory failure. Um, and who is that supervisor, whether or not the state of California or the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank. We, we try to figure that out, who the primary regulator was. It could have been the Board of Governors. But the idea, and I think Josh's point is an important one, that even though it is only one bank, which is the point I was making, it is still a very, very large bank, and that that is significant, perhaps evidence of a supervisory failure. But we also have to take a step back and ask the question, is there more to come, or was this a bespoke uh, incident? Unless it's a rhetorical question of sorts, Steve, in which you say there is more to come if the Fed continues to do what it's doing. They may get off, quote unquote, easy if it's just this one. However, if you continue to do what you do and what you say you're willing to do, are there going to be bigger breaks that have more serious and more wide reaching ramifications than just SVB? Well, it. it Let's hope in the first instance it's not at the eight G-SIBs that we're talking about that have some, you know, trillion dollars worth of capital or $900 billion worth of capital. That's the first thing. The second thing is, Scott, I don't think it matters a quarter or 50 next week when you look at what the damage that's been done to these portfolios of the banks. I don't think that matters a whole lot. Obviously, they get a little more time to catch up given what's happened. One of the ironies of today is that the decline in yields helps the value of those um, of those portfolios that are underwater. Low, you know, the valuations have already, you know, the bubble has already burst, so to speak, out in the valley. It's happened over the last year. 
uh, quite obviously. Um, is this the last shoe to drop, though? Because when I've asked people, have valuations come down enough in the private market out there? You know, people in, in your line of work say no. Has, does this do it? It's likely that we will see another fallout, and you're right. I think this could be the other shoe to drop. And look, again, Silicon Valley Bank was so important across so many aspects of our industry. And I also want to just go back to that point that they were a big provider of venture debt, which was another option for entrepreneurs, founders, to be able to finance their company without the dilution of equity. So we again, we will see others step in, but I think your panelists also make a really good point around the fact that we are going to see increased tightening in the standards. And so we'll have to see exactly how this plays out. But yes, this is a, a game-changing moment. Help me understand this too, Lo. If, if you're, hang on, hang on, um, Josh. I'll come to you in two seconds. I promise. If, if you are a startup, okay, and you have a loan, let's say from SVB, you you have to keep your money there. But if you take your money out, you have to pay back the loan that you got. But if you've been burning cash because of the environment that we've been in. What happens if you don't have the money to pay off the loan that you got because you had your money there, but the money's not there anymore? Help me understand that. I'm not even sure how to untangle all of this because your point is spot on. On the venture debt side, what Silicon Valley Bank would often do is as one of the covenants, they would require a certain minimum cash balance in those deposits. And so we had been advising our general partners to make sure they were talking with the portfolio companies to understand what those covenants mean. Because yes, you want to be able to move your money because it's at risk, but if there was an outstanding loan balance, it might've broken the covenant and placed it into default. But now mm. that it's in the receivership of the FDIC, I'm not sure what happens. I don't understand why they're yeah. a bank to begin with. Sounds like a private equity yeah. finance, financial company rather you know what? than a bank. Just and just to give Steve everybody an indication, I know we, we've, you know, we've, we've used these, these, this language on how important this bank was in, in that area. We looked at their website bef just before we came on the air today, uh, just to try and get some actual numbers. And there it is. I mean, this is on the homepage of SVB. Now, I don't know if it still is, but it was before we came on the air. Just to give you an idea of the size and the scope of how connected this bank was to that innovation economy, if you want to call it that, 88% of Forbes' next billion-dollar startups, SVB clients. Half of all U.S. venture-backed tech and life sciences companies, they bank with SVB. 44% of U.S. VC-backed companies with an IPO in the last calendar year of 22, SVB. Josh, I mean, that just gives you a real idea of how important this financial institution was to that part of the economy. It's, it's, it's so much bigger than losses on treasury portfolio at the bank. There are payrolls for like thousands of businesses, maybe hundreds of thousands of employees, payroll rails running through Silicon Valley Bank. That statement from the banking regulator doesn't make it all clear how payroll, this is like normal people, not uh, Mark Andreessen. This is like people who are working for paychecks. We don't know how this is going to get sorted out. I think that we're under, um, I think that we are underemphasizing the second largest bank failure ever, um, and obviously the biggest one since the GFC. It's a very big deal whether Silicon Valley Bank is in your community or not, because the second order effect of this is now everybody re-examines where their money is. Everyone says, well, wait a minute. So this is about marks being taken on a bond portfolio and maybe pre-IPO shares. Okay, that's somewhat unique. But what about marks on things like commercial real estate, CMBS? What about, right, office real estate? Like this now calls into question and introduces doubt about a lot of things that have nothing to do with Silicon Valley. And I, that's I what I, could make this more significant. I think we tried to make that point um, on yesterday's program. And, you know, to be frank, I feel like you were yesterday looking at this through an SVB lens when all of the stock losses across the regional bank space were 
you know, a sign of worry that this wasn't just an SVB issue in terms of the fallout from it. So it sounds to me, Josh, like yeah. you've digested this and, and had a bit of a change of heart because I don't think you expressed this level uh, reaction well, yesterday. Well, here are some of the things that yeah, here are some of the things that took place after uh, yesterday afternoon. When you see Charles Schwab go down 10 points and then and then 10 points, you have to ask yourself, what is being priced in here? Because Charles Schwab is not a Silicon Valley quasi-private equity venture portfolio. Um, so you, you have to look at the severity of what we've seen in all of the regional banks, but then bigger than regional banks, the brokerage stocks. Look at Vornado, VNO. Look at SL Green. These couldn't be less venture capital related. These are uh, commercial real estate property owning uh, real estate investment trusts based out of New York, Boston, Chicago. Um, they are all behaving in the same way. Uh, why? Because it's a new level of doubt being introduced into a system where things have been relatively calm outside of the pandemic for more than 10 years. So that's so, the point that, gonna, that I think needs you. to be made here. I'm glad you're making it because you're actually you're, you're actually um, walking the walk in, in some respects because you're you sold the VNQ, the Vanguard real estate ETF, and you sold SPG, yeah. Simon Property. So you yeah. you have real concerns about commercial real estate enough to sell those positions, which I know you've liked for a while. Yeah, I actually think those will be fine, but you're swimming against the the, the current hoping that um, the, 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 eventually the market won't get, get to all of, the, all of the REITs that have anything to do with commercial, because it will. Um, and it might not be severe and it might not go on forever, but I had gains and this is in a non-taxable account. So you know, my, my attitude is I think there are gonna be really great opportunities created uh, in this current environment. Why not load up with some ammunition to take advantage? Um, so nothing personal. These are uh, commercial real estate related uh, holdings. And I think that this whole sector is going to have a very awkward spring. The reality in the commercial real estate sector is that a lot of companies went out and took short term loans, mortgages against those properties. And you're seeing, if you haven't seen, you're seeing some defaults. You've seen major, I think Blackstone walking away from properties. You'll see that that'll be pervasive as rates go up. However, in terms of, I don't think that this is systemic for the whole bank system. And you have to associate what's happening in the stock prices, which is versus what's happening oh, no, in the economy. Well, that's why most of right. the notes that are out today right. um, all use the word, most if not all use idiosyncratic right. rather than systemic. Right. But, here, but let me make these observations. This is, this is exactly what the Fed wants to do. They don't want to see a bank go belly up. That's not what I'm saying. They want to see a tightening cycle for credit and get hold of it. So this is working to the Fed's advantage. This is also just one symptom of what the Fed tightening is doing. Here is a year later. This is when, as I've been saying, starts to hit. So you have to almost be clinically insane to start initiating positions in the equity markets at these levels. So it's going to get a lot worse. So let's do this. Let's, let's make that the last word for this segment. Let me squeeze a break in. Uh, Lo, Tony, I cannot thank you enough for being with us today. Uh, we needed your expertise today. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. That's Lowe from Plexo, obviously. Steve Leisman, thank Thanks. you as well for the same reasoning. Uh, great to have your insights on, on all things, uh, the economy, the Fed, and everything else. Our senior economics reporter. Up next, much more on the fallout from SVB. We're back in two. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Now is the time to embrace a new wave of workers. Every day, your team grows younger, more digital, and more drawn to entirely new ways of working, which means you need flexible solutions to connect them where business gets done. T-Mobile for Business was born digital. With America's largest 5G network, we can make it easier to work together from virtually anywhere. Your team may be changing, but with the right tech, it can be more productive than ever before. 
Get started at tmobile.com slash now. All right, welcome back. It's just past the uh, bottom of the hour. Let's bring you up to speed on the very latest now on the SVB failure. Our dear Jabosa uh, out in San Francisco with the very latest. D. Yeah, so for those who may just be tuning in or getting wind of this, the events that have happened over the last 24 hours has led to the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, the backbone of the tech industry, especially here in the San Francisco Bay Area. It has been shut down by regulators. Now the FDIC takes over and says that insured depositors will have access to their deposits no later than Monday morning. Of course, that only covers $250,000 worth of deposits. Medi, that I'm speaking to, had a lot more in their accounts at SVB. Put simply, this is what happened. A perfect storm or a trifecta, if you will, of events that led to the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. One, rising interest rates, which we have talked a lot about. Two, falling venture capital investment levels. We know that money has dried up in the current environment. Three, sustained startup cash burn. The CEO, Greg Becker of SVB, has talked about this in the past. He expected this cash burn level to get better. It has not. This has led them to this position. And in the last 24 hours, many founders, investors that I've talked to have been desperately trying to get their money out. Some were successful and some were not. In fact, I think we have video of the scene right now at one of the SVB offices in New York, you can see that a few founders had collected and they were trying to get their money out. They were turned away. Other founders that I've talked to tried to go to actual bank branches and get cashier's checks so that they could walk to another bank and deposit those. A lot of fallout is still being figured out right now in the Bay Area. A lot of the people I'm talking to are trying to figure out what is next. I talked to one founder, Scott, who says that he was just about to wire money to his new SVB account. He's thankful that he didn't, but now he doesn't know what's going to happen because it takes time to open another business account. And the startup environment, by the way, is getting all the more tenuous because of this failure. Yeah. Dee, thank you for bringing us up to speed. I know you'll have more throughout the day, and I expect I'll see you uh, a little bit later as well. That's Deirdre Bosa. Let's bring in Kevin Simpson now, the founder and CIO of Capital Wealth Planning. It's good to have you back uh, on the show. I'll get to some of the market moves that you've done, but what are you thinking about as this story unfolds? Yeah, I'm kind of on Josh's side with the idea that this is a huge event, and the headlines are horrific. I mean, it reminds us so much of 2007, but I think when we frame it appropriately, Scott, this is a unique situation in that the bank really focuses on a very defined segment of the population. And crypto and pre-IPO markets, they're not the same as the national housing market. Also, one big difference between the early 2000s is the market capitalization rate, the bank capitalization standards are much different, much stricter. I'm not saying they're perfect, but I think that this is something that might not be uh, bleeding out into all of the various financials. So we own Goldman Sachs, we own JP Morgan. We're going to hang in there with those positions. It might not be an isolated event, but I don't think that this is the next catalyst for a financial and banking crisis. Does it make you, the story itself and, you know, the uncertainty that it helps create, does it make you less inclined to want to put new money in the market? Uh, no, I think I'm less, I, you know, I, we, we've been talking about this for 14 months. I think I've been somewhat less inclined for quite some time. But the, but the reality is that we're going to see pullbacks. We're going to see volatility. And when we have weakness, I fully intend to put that money to work. You may want to be a little bit more patient with the financials, because even if this doesn't bleed in, there's still other factors facing the broader financials that you just want to be cognizant of. You know, when you have super, super high short-term rates, I mean, you can walk into any bank and get 4 or 5% in the money market. That affects their net margins. Also, the byproduct of what happened at Silicon Valley when they had to liquidate their book, you have all of these 10-year treasuries that are going to market, and usually banks don't have to sell them. They don't have to market to market. So that's, that's something that we have to look at to make sure that other banks are more capitalized than maybe they thought they were. What's pretty interesting to me is you, you reinstated a position I see uh, in Apple, which you had called away about a month ago. And this is happening when we get a downgrade today to a sell over at Lightshed. Walt Pysak, he's, you know, he's been around the way for a while uh, covering the tech industry, but he takes Apple to a sell today from neutral. Uh, target goes to 120. Why the new buy? Well, I don't know that I'm that pessimistic on it, although the last time we bought it before this week at 146, and this was just about two months ago, we did buy it at 126. 
So 120 is not out of the realm of possibility. But for us, we're looking at the next three to six months, Scott, as an opportunity to build out positions. None of us can time the market, but we can pick the stocks that we invest in. And if we're looking at this next two to, well, one to two quarters, three to six months, as volatile, choppy, I mean, the bear has front and center stage, we at least want to get our foot in here, start building out our positions. And if we can get it at 120, that would be fantastic. Yeah, I see you also bought more UPS at 178. Tell me about that one. We've had that called away twice recently, very similar to Apple. It was a position we were out of. First, we had it called at 207. We got back in, had it called at 186. We started to get back in. Again, it's a scenario where we're looking for companies that have good revenue, earnings, dividends, dividend growth. And these are stocks that are small positions that will build out. Now, I think that's what the viewers, the investors need to take solace in is that volatility gives us opportunities. And when we have pullbacks in the market, it's not a time to be fleeing and running for the doors. But if you're looking for a three to five year window of really good companies, low multiple, strong earnings, great dividends, you can build positions exactly the same way that we do it. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Kevin, thank you. That's Kevin Simpson of Capital Wealth. Coming up, Mike Santoli waiting in the wings for his midday word. He'll join us next. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. We're back on the Half Senior Markets commentator, Mike Santoli, as I said, uh, joining us here at Post 9 for his midday word, which, you know, has to be all about this. It's all about this, this encompassing a lot. Um, you know, one of the plot twists, of course, is bonds rallying with stocks still backing off and you get the safety bit in there. And so yesterday, uh, when everybody has the revelation that there is this huge unre- unrealized loss, some of it on bank balance sheets in bond portfolios that have lost a lot of money. Well, bonds have been rallying here. So you've almost kind of had a slight offset to that immediate fear, at least in many situations. I think the big question is, you know, sometimes uh, you make a sacrifice, throw somebody in the volcano, and you appease the gods for a little while. And that's what we might be looking at. And I would remind folks who keep saying the Fed finally broke something. Central banks finally broke the thing that was always going to break. Well, that's true. But last year, we also had crypto go down a trillion dollars. FTX failed. The U.K. pension system kind of threatened to blow up briefly. Uh, We had a weekend in October when everyone said Credit Suisse was the new Lehman. So my point is not that these things always turn out okay. It's that it's been cumulative and you have more scares than you have genuine, you know, fatal threats. So that's what we're having to navigate right now, I think. And with a stock market that's... uh, you know, kind of uh, using the fullest extent of the leeway that it was that it had built up into this uh, last month. What do you make of the um, the market? Seems like it's made a couple of attempts to you know get into positive territory. Yeah. Um, do you, you feel like that's about okay? Well, maybe this pushes the Fed off of the the gas. Yep. That's, that, that's what that's it. all about. Well, it's that. Plus, it is the yields coming in. Yeah, the in. yield's coming in. And that's all part of the same story, I think, or, or at least, you know, in large part. Um, so I do think that's what it's about. We did come into the day only in the extreme short term, getting a little bit oversold. Certainly a lot of the panicky action in banks yesterday uh, pulled the rubber band back in that sector pretty far. Um, so there's still attempts, you know, big tech trying to act like it's defensive again. It's not really persuasively doing that just yet, but it's it's uh, it's showing some signs. I just feel like, you know, anytime you're talking about the FDIC yeah. and a bank failure, you know, you, you can't overstate the concerns that 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 type of stuff creates no. in the marketplace. You can't. And, and, and my old guy line has been in 1994, you had Payne-Weber U.S. Government Income Trust and every other closed-end bond fund that was basically trying to synthetically create yield out of nowhere blew up. And people thought it was a safe cash alternative, and they went down 25% in a blink. And then Orange County blew up. And then all these corporates had derivatives losses. So it's not to say it's always okay, but that was when the Fed was tightening from three to six. Final 50-point hike after Orange County blew up, and that was it, right? So who knows if, if, if there'll be a similar path this I'll time. talk to you uh, for certain. Uh, you can bet on yep. that. Don't go anywhere. Close the right. bell. I'm we'll good. see you then. That's Mike Santoli. We're back in two minutes. 
All right, shares of SVB still halted. Uh, by now you know uh, what's happening here as regulators have closed that bank today. We still follow the reverberations and all of that fallout. Uh, we want to bring in now uh, someone who's been facing this uh, and the issues there uh, since yesterday. As far as we know, Ryan Gilbert, he uh, runs a venture uh, firm, uh, Launchpad Capital. Ryan, can you hear me? I can hear you well. Good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon to you. Um, we understand you were trying to get your money out of SVB. What can you tell us? Thank you. Well, yesterday in the morning at about 11 a.m. Pacific time, certainly the crowd started saying, get your money out of the bank. And we had a couple of wires that we had set up for other transactions that typically go out within seconds. These wires were held up for about five hours on average. We had to make phone calls to folks we knew at the bank, and ultimately the system got unclogged and the wires went out. Um, but it was, it was one of those moments that added unnecessary stress to us and to many others in the ecosystem. And it just showed us how reliant we were on a single financial institution. Can you just, you know, also just give me more color, you know, just let me inside your brain as all this is, is unfolding, what you're thinking about, you know, here you are in the Valley, you've, you know, funded a bunch of companies, you have money in, in a bank you assume is safe, and then this happens. Well, I'm a VC. I'm also a board member at a bank in California, and I've got about 34 banks as limited partners in my fund. I thought I knew a little bit about banking to be dangerous. But this episode taught us something really, really interesting, that uh, because the Fed has been raising rates, it pretty much made SDB's existing loans much less valuable. From our perspective, the government raised the costs of being a bank. SBB then picked a very bad day to take a loss and announce an equity issuance. The net effect is deposits started running away from the bank, and uh, those of us who wanted to get out before the Twitter herd beat us were stuck in the plumbing. It's a very important lesson, and um, I think in the future, treasury management is something that everybody needs to think very closely about. Where did you wire the money to? Which, which new institution? Uh, we, got, we, we, have, we have relationships with other institutions like J.P. Morgan Chase, and hopefully they're too big to fail. Yeah, let's all hope. Uh, did you have personal money? Did you have personal money at SVB as well? I mean, that's one of the most interesting parts of this story um, is how intertwined every, everything was, you know, from yeah. GPs, uh, general partners who, you know, had banking relationships, had personal money, maybe had mortgages of the like. What about you? No, I didn't. Um, I, I've, I try and keep my, my business affairs very separate from my personal affairs. But one of the strengths of SVB over the years has been the fact they've been able to serve the needs of GPs and limited partners and all the founders, I mean, in addition to serving their businesses. And um, I yeah. suppose that, that that's also part of the issue. It, it was the secret to the success, but it's also uh, contributed to the unfortunate demise. You know, give me an idea, too, of, of the kinds of conversations that you've had with some of the companies that you in, have invested in, the, the founders who I can only imagine how unsettled many may be. We're, we're talking about, you know, mostly younger people who probably didn't even live through 2008. Well, they, they certainly were probably in college around that time or high school. Part of the problem that they're facing today is making payroll. They're reliant on third-party payroll services companies. Uh, one, at least, that I'm aware of does ride on the SVB rails. And if they've wired money into SVB to make payroll for next week, that money pretty much is locked up until the bank reopens on Monday. Um, and then we're going to be in a situation that we have to ask, can, will the payroll company be able to get all those funds that have already been deposited into those accounts? out. So I think the biggest challenge that people have right now is where is their operating cash? Can they use that? And will this impact operations of their businesses? That's yeah. the sad and thing. I, just to be clear, I didn't mean I didn't think they were alive in 2008, but certainly they weren't, you know, as founders of their business probably at that period of time, nor did they, you know, obviously have to deal with, with that situation and understand what it means when you talk about banks failing and the like. Let me ask you this last question before yeah. I let you go. Um, from your perspective, what's the long-term impact on the ecosystem out there as a result of this earthquake? It's a massive earthquake, and the holes in the ground are going to be deep because SVB was the go-to institution if you wanted to get venture debt to support your venture round. It's a huge loss for all of us, and I hope it's a gap that fills very, very quickly. We needed SVB. They've been around for 40 years. They've been a massive ally to our industry, and we're going to mourn this day. Yeah. Ryan, I appreciate your time uh, very much. Wish you well. Uh, Thank you. All the best to all of you. Yeah, you as well. Uh, that's Ryan Gilbert.
again, uh, of Launchpad Capital. We're back. Uh, finals after this. Uh, welcome back. We are getting some headlines from uh, Apple's shareholder meeting today, uh, which is just another event that is going on. You can see the stock is down by about 1%. Tim Cook saying that Apple continues to plan for dividend increases, uh, that Apple will be the largest customer at Taiwan Semi. They're manufacturing uh, that Arizona plant there, and that all taking place at the shareholder meeting at this very moment. We'll continue to watch shares, obviously, uh, as well. Let me give you a reminder what's coming up uh, today, 3 o'clock Eastern time, on Closing Bell as well. we got Schwab's Liz Ann Saunders. I cannot think of a better day to have her join us. Rick Heitzman, too, of First Smart Capital. He's a venture capitalist. We'll get his take on the fallout from SVB. And uh, talk markets, obviously, moving forward. Uh, let's do final trades. Josh, I want you to give me something, though, on DocuSign. It's down big, uh, which you own. Yeah. Yeah, DocuSign had a revenue beat of 3% and an earnings per share beat of about 24%. It was a very good report. Just the wrong day. Doesn't really seem to matter to anyone. It's caught up with a lot of other tech stocks in, in the maelstrom. So I bought more of that on the open. Not a lot. It's a small position. I also bought more Oracle, which is my mm. final trade. Uh, Oracle's report was also very good. Also doesn't matter to the market today. Um, but I took the opportunity to lower my average uh, uh, cost. Oh, good to know about both of those. Uh, and thank you for that, uh, Josh Brown. Steve Weiss, final. Short end of the curve, treasuries. You can still get close to 5%. Why would you not do this? Secure tax advantage return. All right. And Liz Young? Steve took mine, so I'm going to use something else. This does not have the markings of a soft oh. landing for me, so wait this out in gold. I think next week could be volatile, too, with CPI data. Okay. Uh, so right now, let's just uh, look at the markets as we, uh, as we go out here. Uh, the Dow right now is uh, down about two-thirds of 1%, 32,000. And 40, uh, S&P 500 still off nearly 1%. NASDAQ uh, worse than that. I'll see you closing bell. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.